following message is presented by Community Gospel Church in Bremen, Indiana. It is our great privilege to share this ministry with you. We in no way intend for this to be a replacement for the local church. It is our prayer that this would serve as a resource to help make Jesus Christ known in our congregation and other congregations gathering across the world. For more information about Community Gospel Church, visit www.communitygospelchurch.com. It is a real, while you're turning in your scriptures to the book of uh, the Psalms, and the 11th Psalm in particular, while you're turning there, let me say it's a, a great delight to be back with you, uh, to be here this morning. And I love your pastor. I think he's just a wonderful, wonderful guy. And we've had some good times together. And I uh, just appreciate the opportunity this morning of, of being here. Uh, the Psalms... And I'd like to look with you this morning, if I may, at the 11th Psalm. Uh, it is a, to me, it is a, it's a life psalm. It's a real life. Now, all of the scriptures are real life. Uh, they, they are not the, what secularists would think of, you know, pie in the sky and all that. I mean, this is real stuff. This is real stuff. And I think you'll see that as we look seriously and carefully at this passage of Scripture this morning. To the choir master of David, in the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain, for behold, the wicked bend the bow, they have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot out of the dark at the upright of heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what good is righteousness? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord is seated on his heavenly throne. His eyes, his eyelids test the children of men. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked, fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. Father, in these really, in the scheme of things, brief moments that we have together, I pray for myself that I shall speak only your word. 
faithful to you. Communicate to these, your people, your truth. And that that truth, I pray, will fall on fallow ground, receptive hearts. I know it will accomplish what you purpose it to do. But I ask, O oh God, that that purpose this morning would be for the praise of your glory. That it would be for the encouragement, for the building up of every person that is here to know peace and strength security, and hope in your name and in the great name of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, in whose name I pray. Amen. I don't know about you. I think I do know about you. I'm concerned about today. I'm concerned about our world. I'm concerned about our country. I'm concerned about Christians, the people of God. I'm concerned about our world and the continued onslaught of believers, the most persecuted people today are Christians. I am concerned about Christians' response to that, which not infrequently is to become more militaristic and vengeful. I'm concerned about the church. I'm concerned about our country. It just happens that through my father's line, uh, we go back to the 1600s. And he happened to be, Deacon Thomas Blossom, uh, the deacon of the pilgrim people. And he was alongside John Robinson when he died in England. Uh, staying with the ship that was not seaworthy, and so he stayed with the pilgrim people over in England. And there is a letter, an extant letter, between Deacon Thomas Blossom and Governor Bradford, in which Deacon Blossom asks the pilgrims on the American side to send them money so they can come over. <laughs> in 1629, uh, that, that's, uh, I've been a fundraiser quite a bit of my life, and now I know where it came from. It's in the genes, okay, <laughs> in the genes. Uh, that's why I became a pastor, because I could take the offering. Uh, you know, it, it, and here, it, in other words, I guess what I'm saying to you there is that I've had this sense of Americanism, <laughs> of North Americanism, of the United States, of, of what we were founded to be, 
and the kinds of godly people that founded this country. Uh, and now I see the assault of that. I, I think that there is no doubt, and I do not mean to become political this morning. I mean simply to speak biblically. I believe that we are very definitely moving as a, a nation uh, listening and hearing voices that are arising that one day would have been impossible to have heard, never would have dared to speak. And now to hear that it is to become law in certain places, that a live child should be left to die. Are you kidding me? I'm concerned. I wonder where it's headed. What's going to happen? But those aren't my only concerns. <laughs> the big, broad picture. You know. I have money problems, too, just like you do. Wonder where it's going to come from. Wonder what's going to happen to the stock market. Wonder how my kids are going to make it in today's world to pay the kinds of college education bills and to pay off the bills that they've got. Looking at my grandchildren as they move up into those ages, wondering where, I, I'm concerned. We, we are all what we call, and you can catch this word, agonists. Every one of us is an agonist. In literature, there are basically three characters, three identities that you can have. One is the agonist. The second is the antagonist. And the third is the protagonist. Every story has an agonist, a an antagonist and a protagonist. Every one of us in real life are agonists. In other words, the people in struggle. That's what the agonist is, a person in struggle. The antagonist, that which is against us, our enemy, and the protagonist, that which is for us. In Psalm 11, I would like for us this morning to look at those three characters. First note with me, the agonist. Because his story is very much like our story. And in fact, I'd suggest to you it's very much our story. The agonist. His name is David. He writes it about his own life. We don't know exactly when this might have happened out of the circumstances out of which he might have written this. We don't know that exactly. Traditionally, it is believed, and reasonably so, that this came out of his struggle with his son, Absalom. Can you imagine the struggle 
of having your son be your adversary. So adversarial that your child wanted to take your life. Now, interestingly enough, in our day, that's not an unusual history. But to have your own son, one whom you love deeply, want to take your life. We catch now the struggle that he is having as he is running, <laughs> as he is moving away from Jerusalem on over across to another land so that he might be safe, find some security. And that interchange is found for us in this passage of Scripture. Or not in this passage of Scripture, but in Scriptures themselves. The book of Samuel is David has that movement from Jerusalem, but still his love, oh, Absalom, Absalom, my son, Absalom. The conflict, the struggle of life. The kind of struggle of life that you face when you go to the doctor and the news that you thought was for just another appointment comes out to be something quite different than that. Your life is at risk. Or it is when the telephone rings and your granddaughter says, as I sat this morning with an older couple, your granddaughter says, I haven't been able to get a hold of Dad. Could you go check on him? And you fumble for the keys, and you go over to the house, and you open it, and you go to the bedroom, and you find your son-in-law laying there, passed away how many hours or days, they're not sure. Death comes. Or perhaps it's a financial issue. You had planned on things, and you'd laid it out very carefully, and you've got your future, but the stock market on which you depended, or the currency on which you depended, or the job on which you depended, or maybe it's a relationship. I think of that often for us as, as, as a young person. It is important, my, my acceptance that people like me, that I have friends, and how many times our lives are, are metered by our friendship. It's either on or it's off, and when it's off, it's crushing, and when it's on, you couldn't ask for a better day than that. It could be anything. But we are agonists. We are from which the word agony comes. It's a Greek word. We are sufferers. We are in conflict. So here is the agonist in real life. Your life, my life. His name is David. And then there is something that speaks to him 
And the interesting thing is now we move to the antagonist. We don't know because it doesn't identify. Is this something simply within David himself, which would be a natural understanding, or is it something outside? Is it a supposed friend? Or is it the devil, a real being, or demonic, that says to him, run. Run, and notice what, is, notice what the scripture says, to your mountain. <laughs> okay. Run to what you have identified as your safe place. Something that you have chosen, and more than likely, something that you have made. Where you find secure. For some people, that's their bedroom. For some people, that's jump in their car. For some people, that's to go to the library. For some people, that's to move within the inner recesses of their being, find a solace. To some people, it's their bank. Some people, it's their friends. But it is what they have conceived and basically have contrived as their safe place. Because they're being chased. Run. They're being chased by an adversary that is not out for their good. And maybe the very thing that is saying that in you, while it appears to be a friend, is truly your enemy. My friend, my enemy? <laughs> you don't have to go very far in the New Testament and you find Peter is with Jesus. And, and uh, you know, they come, and Jesus said, this and this is going to happen, and so forth. And, and what does Peter say? No, this will never happen. And what does Jesus say to him? Get behind me, Satan. His friend was his enemy. And you think that place of security is your hope. When in fact, it will in truth give you nothing but despair. Run. That's what the adversary says. And it is not simply despair, it is darkness. Notice in the shadows. In the shadows. He's really aiming at your heart. Because that's where the issues of life are. See, you think, oh, it's just money. No, it's an issue of the heart. Oh, it, it's just my health. No, it's an issue of the heart. That's where the battleground is, isn't it, really? In those quiet times? As you're in agonizing, and you're trying to say what's real, 
what lasts, what matters, what really counts. Those are the kinds of things, the questions that we ask. Or, now catch this, and th this is why. Notice verse 3. And it's an interesting thing because interpreters have difficulty really in, in translating this. We have it, it, and it comes through to us as, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? But really, what's being wrestled with here in the agony, the agony, the agonizing question is, if the foundations, if the strong things on which I have depended are falling apart, what good is righteousness? I've asked that. I've asked that. For me, it was 1995, and I may have, last time, I'm not quite clear whether I did or didn't mention this, but in 1995, my world shook. <laughs> it really shook. Uh, on the front page of every newspaper around, and uh, you may not have put it together, but I'm that guy who in May 15th of 1995 was on the front page of the Wall Street Journal and every other newspaper in the country, and, and internationally as well. Uh, my wife just, my life just <laughs> like that. And the agony of that. And I remember going to the U.S. Attorney's Office uh, in Philadelphia. FBI was there. They, they were out to get me kind of thing, you know. And I remember, I remember the exasperation of saying, you know what? I might as well have taken the money. At least I'd have had it right now. I don't even have it, and you're accusing me of having it. <laughs> and I was thinking, what good has it been that I have done right when I'm being accused of wrong? What good is righteousness? See, that's the question of the antagonist. That's the question of the adversary. That's the question of the enemy. What good is it to be good in an evil world? What good is it to believe when people laugh, scorn, mock, deride your faith? This often occurs in the scriptures. Psalm 73 is one example of that. When the, when the righteous perish and the wicked flourish. <laughs> what, what good is it? And we ask that. You know, I mean, we've tried so hard. We've been so sacrificial. We've done so much. And now this. And we begin to look to heaven and clench our fists and say, God, where are you? I can't imagine what it's like to go through martyrdom. 
can't imagine what that's like. I can't imagine what it is like to have a disease that is incurable. I, I, I can't imagine what that would be like. But I have my story, and you have your story. And don't think that this world is a friend of grace. <laughs> you have your enemies. Even though many of us try everything we can not to have any enemies, you have enemies. There are those who want to bring you down. There are those who want for you to join them in the pit. There is one, our adversary, the devil. He is real. It's not a myth. It's not a legend. It is a reality. There is an antagonist to your soul. But there is also a hero. There is a redeemer. There is a name that is above every name. And I love, I love the drama of this. Notice, the question in verse 3, and the answer is not the way we would answer things. We would give an argument But what does the psalmist do? Because remember, he's speaking God's word. What is it that God says through him? Verse 4. What good is righteousness? And you have this. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord is on his heavenly throne. Above. And in one sense, what we call transcendent, above, outside, all of this, is the living God. The only God, the God of the scriptures, the God of history, or as has been said over and over and over in the Old Testament scripture, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, God. He's still there. He was there before you and I came to be before anything else. And he will be there when all of history is consummated. God. Now, our, the character of the protagonist becomes clear then. He is holy, which means he is pure, which means he is single. Single in his heart. He is not duplicitous. There aren't two personalities. He is not schizophrenic. 
He is single. He is whole. He is pure. He rules. He rules sovereignly. Now, I'll have to admit to you that is a subject in and of itself, and as the subject is beyond my comprehension, there is a lot that I know. I know because the scriptures say it. But there's a lot that I can't put together. Okay? This is the God who can harden hearts. This is the God who can send evil spirits. This is the God who the scripture says does what pleases him. But I do know, if I put it together, that he is holy and pure, so what pleases him is holy and pure. There is a lot about him I, I don't fully understand, but I'm not the fourth person of the Trinity. Okay? But he has spoken. He has given us his word. He, above all things, who does everything according to the counsel of his own will, for his own glory, because his own glory is my greatest good, he wills for me my greatest good. That is his desire of heart, without doubt. And he is not oblivious to my suffering. Any more than he was oblivious to the suffering of his son. For the Lord laid upon him. He who didn't hold back his own son, but delivered him up for us all. who took him, led by the Spirit, into the wilderness where he would be tempted. So this God is not an absent God, but is a very present, involved God in all things that happen. He is there, and he is involved in all of those agonies, all of those sufferings. Listen again to the book of Hebrews. Some though he were, yet learned he obedience. Jesus, the one who was delivered up for us all, learned he obedience through the very things that he suffered. I remember going to visit my uncle who uh, was dying of cancer in the hospital. And, and I, I remember he'd say, Glenn, don't touch me. Don't touch me. He didn't want anybody to touch him because just the touch would bring pain to him. And I said, Uncle Walt, I just, I just wish that I could take your suffering for you. I just wish that I could. But I couldn't. It wasn't to be my suffering. 
It was to be his. Any of us who have children know that. We see them go through things. I mean, imagine the crush when they thought they would be attracted to and attractive to somebody, and then that person spurns them, or spurns their, their friends, spurn them and leave them out, whether they're little or as they grow older. And you know what it's like when you say, oh, oh and you, you suffer with them. You hurt with them, and then they get married, and they go through some of the struggles of their marriage, and, and you see that kind of thing, and perhaps it ends in, in divorce, and you know the struggle of your heart, and you know the agony, and you know th- because you lived that with them and through them. And here is a father who is not unacquainted with our sufferings, but has a purpose. He himself suffered so that he might be for us a high priest. He might be an intercessor. He might be an intermediary. He might be one to stand before God, this just judge, this one who has brought about that suffering for us, so that, what is the purpose of all that? Ah, go with me to the book of Hebrews, if you would. Hebrews and the 12th chapter, and we'll get a little insight here. In the book of Hebrews, chapter 12, the author says to us, starting at verse uh, 25, see that you don't refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much Less will we escape if we reject him who warns us from heaven. Now catch this. At that time, his voice shook the earth. God shook the earth. But now he has promised, yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Let me repeat that one. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, the things that are made, the transient, in order that the things that cannot be shaken, the intransient may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Catch what's happening here? What is, what is God doing when he shakes your foundations? He is grappling with you in a Jacob wrestle that you will lay hold of things that are eternal 
that you will lay hold of the issues of God. That you will be on something that cannot be shaken. So that you will not fear. So that you will not be given to self-protection. But you will realize that you can give up your life because it's only in giving up your life that you find it. It's only in letting go that you receive. It's only in trusting that you can be grounded. There's a cute story. I, I, I love this one. The guy is out, comes close to the edge, the precipice, the rock, and he falls off. And he just flails, and in his flailing, he touches and he grabs hold of a, of a branch that's sticking out from the, the cliff. Sticking out for his life. And he yells, help! Help, is there anyone up there? Is there anyone out there? Help me, help me. <laughs> All of a sudden, there is this, yeah. Help me, help me. I'll do anything, whatever you do. Yeah. I, I will do any. What do you want me to do? What do you? Let go. What? Let go. Is there anyone else out there that can help me? <laughs> okay. We want what we can see. We want our created things. We want our mountain. But that's something that's been made, not by God. It's our contrivance. It's our God's little G's. You see, fear, running, despair, self-preservation are the character of unbelief. We become our own gods. And we are no bigger than ourselves. But there is a hero. There is a redeemer. There is one who has come like us, tempted in every point as we are, struggling far more, struggling far more than any one of us has ever imagined Do you know what the last words that he spoke were? Into your hands I commit my spirit. I believe you. That's the word of the cross. You know what? God highly exalted him and gave him the name above every other name.
mercy, God said, I accept your sacrifice. Your righteousness counts. Me? Mine's intermingled with unrighteousness. Sometimes that unrighteousness kind of takes over in my life. But for him, yet without sin. And that perfect atoning sacrifice won our day. See, it's in Christ alone. That's why I love that song. My hope is built on nothing less and hopefully nothing other than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but solely lean on Jesus' name. Does that mean I'm not going to die? No, no. Does that mean I'm not going to suffer? No, no. But I'll tell you one thing, it means that I won't be alone because the living God is with me. It means that there is a purpose to my suffering. Count it all joy, okay? Jesus goes through the temptations. What is the purpose of the suffering? Romans chapter 8. For those he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. You see, that's what God is doing in whatever happens in my life. He is working in bringing me into the conformity to the likeness of Jesus Christ. And there's nothing better. That's the best. That's the best. Working all of these things together for the good of those who love. What good is righteousness? <laughs> it's all good. <laughs> it's the only good is righteousness. A righteousness that is not defined by the world, but is defined by the living God. It's not your truth, my truth, it's his truth. It's the hero's truth. And I fail, but the good news is, is that he's my righteousness. First Corinthians, he's my righteousness. He is the justice of God. He is the rightness of God. And I find my acceptance with God, I find my likeness to God in Jesus Christ alone. Restored to what God had originally created me to be in his image. Renewed. So what do the righteous do when the foundations shake? They become more righteous. What do they do? They go to the throne. What do they do? They gather with other righteous people. What do they do? They go to the word of truth, which is the rock. What do they do? 
They surrender. They obey. They believe. Because you see, we're built on a rock, not on sand. We are built on faith, not on unbelief. And our lives then become right in Christ and the doing of right or obeying, trust and obey. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Let me, let me close with one example. Here's an exa- a wonderful example. A number of years ago, uh, we had at our, our church in the East Coast uh, a noted missionary uh, come. His name was J. Christie Wilson, who taught at Gordon-Conwell Seminary. But he had been a missionary in Iran. Now, this was at a different time than the, the present age. And uh, he was flying there, and while there, he made, made this flight, and as they were approaching the, the city to which they were going to land, they received word that all electricity, all power had gone out. So there was no way that they could see the landing strip. They didn't have the electronics that we presently have. They had no idea, and therefore, the word was, the word was, we are going to crash and everybody's going to die. What would you do if you got that word? Let me tell you what J. Christie Wilson did. He went from down the aisle, from row to row, and he talked to them about Jesus. Talk to him about Jesus. It wasn't about his life. It was about Jesus. And it was about their eternity. That they could have hope. Hope, not necessarily that they had survived, but hope that they would see with the living and true God and not be afraid. That they would find their righteousness in Jesus Christ. That's what the righteous do. For you see, when I go through the valley of dark shadows, I will fear no evil, because you're with me. And you're for me, not against me. My friends, all of us are agonists. All of us have an antagonist. But I hope this morning you know the hero. I hope this morning You know the one who is for you and not against you. His name is Jesus, the Christ, the Son of the living God. He lives. Shall we pray? O Lord our God, you know what we're going through. Lord Jesus Christ, you've been in far worse straits than we could ever imagine. And you're a survivor. You're a winner. You're the Lord. You're the Lord. I believe. Help my unbelief. Lord, I know righteousness in Christ, and may I 
my life be lived in justice and righteousness, in obedience and surrender and submission, dying daily to myself, crucified with Christ, but knowing that the life that I now live is life in Christ. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So I pray this morning that you will help us to turn our eyes on what's eternal. I pray this morning for those here who don't know that. Maybe they're still in the agony and they, they haven't known the joy of surrender and they haven't known your grasp upon their lives. They haven't turned in faith. They're still in fear. Oh God, in your goodness, open their eyes to see the Lord and his holy temple. Open their eyes to see the King, the Lord, the living God who's on the throne. And give to them peace. Give to them hope. Give to them confidence. Give to them the tomorrow. Give to them Christ. Spirit of God. Enliven, awaken, and call them to say, God, I believe. Lord Jesus Christ, I believe. I pray these things in the one and only name, the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Community Gospel Church Podcast. If you would like to support this ministry financially, simply log on to communitygospelchurch.com and click the Contribute tab.